Hello everyone, I'm Katie Burke, and welcome to The Sober Creative, where we debunk the myth of the tortured artist, we talk sobriety, creativity, and the practice there within. Yo, what is up? I'm so excited to talk to you today about sobriety and creativity. Uh, it's Katie Burke. This is the Sober Creative. Let's fucking get into it. So I am really nervous about this episode because I'm not used to talking without a person in front of me and in acting when you're growing up in that space. It's like the answer is always in your partner. I have no partner. I have a microphone and I have Pro Tools and I have my cat who's looking out the window at a squirrel that is infinitely more interesting than me right now. So I love you so much for listening. Thank you. And let's get into it. Today, I'm going to talk about the beginnings of stuff, (laughs) the beginnings of anything, the small steps that we take to meet the world in a new way that is totally ours and totally unother than uh, how we've done it before and what can happen and some things that might happen. So let's talk about sobriety. When I began sobriety, uh, I saw my sister do it first. My sister got sober like eight or nine years ago. I'm not going to share her story, but I'm going to share that she did get sober and it completely gave me permission to do that. And that's really special to me. The idea that what we do is so important in the way that it can actually allow someone else to do it. So if you're thinking about starting something and you're thinking about giving something a shot from your heart, from yourself, that you've never seen before or done before, do it. Do it even if you totally fuck it up because you have no idea the repercussions of what committing to that thing can bring someone else. Because there have been multiple times in my life where I've seen someone do something and I I thought to myself, holy shit, we're allowed to do that? Yes. So I remember specifically, uh, I was on I was on stage with someone who'd gotten a part that I wanted in college, and she was amazing. Her name's Jill Cross, and she's a monster. Um, so it's at Stony Brook University. We're in this show, and she got the lead, and she was monstrous. I mean, she was she took up so much space. She's just so incredible and so bright, and scary. And so she's losing it on stage. She's giving birth, and she's really going there. And I remember thinking, holy shit, you're allowed to do that. You're allowed to be so unbalanced and messy and crazy up there. And I was just like, fuck, yeah. So that totally changed my trajectory in acting. I suddenly wasn't just this comedic actor putting it on. I was given permission because someone just went there to live in. And now, if you know me and you know my work in theater, I typically would end up playing crazy people or like, deeply emotive and people with depth and that really go places that are quite ugly, you know, quote, ugly. Um, And that was because of that moment, because I was given permission. Another permission moment was when my sister got sober. I was like, holy shit, it's possible. I wonder what that's like. Just knowing someone's doing it is just really helpful for someone like me who needs permission to do stuff. Um, I think there was another moment Oh my gosh, when I was 16, I saw the color purple and I heard this woman just belt Suge Avery in the color purple at the end when she's, God's trying to tell you something. And I heard her do that. And I had been trying to sing from that place for 
a few years when I was in choir and I would kind of go to that like belting kind of joyful, just transcendent space of when you kind of lose yourself in that kind of big, big sound coming from your voice. I remember losing myself in it in choir and people turning around and just like, what are you doing? You're so in the way. You're so drawing outside the lines vocally, like stop doing that. And I watched this woman get up and do that in a church some place where that was the only place I was singing at that point. And I watched her just lose her mind and tell that story of just like being in there at night and God's telling her something that like, you know, you, you can't sleep, you can't eat, you can't, something's wrong and just singing about it. Ah, oh, so free. And I was like, holy shit, that gives me permission. People are doing that just because it's not happening in my church doesn't mean it's not allowed to happen at all. So another permission moment. So that's just a note on beginning stuff. You never know where you're going to end up and you definitely have no idea who you're going to inspire along the way and at the arrival of the destination of that thing. So uh, a thing about beginnings is when you start doing something and it fucking sucks, there are some, there are some really pivotal moments where you can quit or you can keep at it and stay messy. So when those first pivotal moments of sobriety hit for me, for instance, you're at that place and you just want to fucking quit. And I quit a million times. Oh my God. I would quit drinking and then I would start drinking again a million times. I've tried to get sober so many times. My mentor even told me that one time because I've been trying to kick coffee and I keep somehow coming back to it with the stories and all this other shit. But he's like, you know, when you quit drinking, it wasn't like you quit it and it was done. You had to try a bunch of times and it's true. It can totally look like that and that's okay. So in early sobriety, I was living at my mom and dad's and I borrowed my mom's car and I went for a drive and I had just gotten out of New York and a ton of depression and a ton of fear and I like literally couldn't get up off of my mattress. I was so terrified and I couldn't even name why I was terrified. It was just this feeling of terror, which is kind of amazing that it was such a raw terror. There was no story even attached to it. But so that's very powerful. But to come from that place to living with my incredible mom and dad, I had such a gift there where I had this safe place to get sober. So I, of course, am losing my mind. I have been drinking every day and dealing with all this fear and like to suddenly be without it was terrifying in itself because it was a break in the routine. So I'm there, I'm beginning sobriety, I'm two months in and I'm sitting on a bench and I have this root beer that I bought and I'm like, I just want a fucking drink, you know, I'm like out by a gym, I'm just sitting in this plaza just screaming just looking for a way out and it wasn't coming. There was nothing that was going to come. And, you know, this isn't some, you know, I realized the privilege in this moment of like, it's not one of those moments because I've had way worse moments where I'm sleeping on a train, like, and I wake up or I have someone smooshing my face against a fence because I misspoke. And like, who knows if I'm going to really just get sh shot or stabbed or whatever. This was not one of those moments because I was pretty numb by the time that shit was happening. This was like, I'm present to anger and frustration and fear. And no answer came, nothing. But I remember that week was the first week I started making things because I hadn't made anything in months. And the way I used to make things while I was using was with Adderall. 
And I thought that that was the only thing that could lubricate the wheel or get me focused enough or put me in a space of receptivity to make stuff. That was a belief. So what was happening in this moment while I'm sitting on that bench was that belief was being crumpled. And I wasn't conscious, but that is something that happened as consequence to my sobriety. So these these times where you want to rip your heart out or rip your skin off or whatever, they're huge. They can feel huge. A quiet thing follows after those loud things play themselves out. And my quiet thing was a new belief started to blossom that I can regulate my own emotions and that I can do things without needing something else first. So that week I wrote a song and I couldn't even, I hadn't touched the guitar sober in years. But I truly believe it's that that crazy precipice moment that you just got to walk through and then the quiet stuff starts to seep in of what's really going on is a sustainable life is coming into light. So by beginning and just walking through that that original kind of craze and that you know might happen to anybody all the time not just when you're trying to get sober but these precipice points these pivotal moments where you could turn back and you don't you get caught by something something catches you and there is solace available there is always going to be solace available after the ter- terrifying ride so i started making stuff and it felt kind of good and they weren't great, but they were making things. I realized in this new beginning of sobriety, I had a new beginning of creativity. I didn't realize that the past seven years of music I was making was totally out of pain and being a victim. It was beautiful and it was specific. And it not all the stories were mine, but the bandwidth of what I was available to create was very specific and of a certain palette and of a certain color and texture, that that's what I was available for while I was drinking and taking Adderall. Now that I wasn't doing those things, my palate changed and my availability to mold the meat that I was being given by, you know, the God channeling the muse, the way that I was molding it was different because different things had begun to light up that were first watered down for years. So... The parts I was playing as a character in these stories were really different and they were honestly more positive and more, of course, they were, they became more also advice giving and like, uh, more, I had the superiority when I first got sober, which is really interesting. And that kind of came out in the music too. It's just a flavor of how you receive the goods and how you put your stamp on it is going to change because you are the vessel and you are changing. My reasons for making music and writing stories and making plays and acting, that has never changed. I just want to tell the truth. I just want to have fun, tell the truth, and I want to get lost in something. I mean, that's really why I love it. My favorite part is the making because I'm knee deep in it. I, because I'm not thinking or analyzing, I'm moving and allowing and listening. And it's just the, my, I just love that. I just, that's such a a heavenly place when nothing else matters and you're holding on to something and it's moving and you're just following (laughs) and it's the greatest. Um, it's like you have a whole new set of instincts that aren't even yours 
or they don't feel like yours, then the possibilities feel kind of endless and you're just being taken on the story. Anyway, that's what the beginnings of sobriety and creativity, you know, can look like. Um, signs you might want to get sober. I just want to throw this in. If you, if you want to get sober, dude, just try it. It doesn't have to be this huge, yep, I'm getting sober. For me, it felt pretty huge because I had been trying for years because I knew I was ruining my relationships and my life, but it doesn't have to look that bleak. I was just in a meditation center meeting uh, recently, and I heard someone talk about the idea that uh, there's nothing like totally wrong with their life or the subtleties of, you know, the subtlety of wanting to commit to something like sobriety because their life isn't in turmoil. So it's, and I always feel like it's really easy for me as an addict, like, thank God my life looked the way it did. It was so easy to see that things needed to change, you know, like I got it easy. Like I got the superhero-ness of full inflamed addiction that I can now turn on its head because I see it so clearly and so can everyone else. But when you have this sense of subtlety about how it might be affecting your life, like that, that might be hard to make that decision. I'm here to tell you, it ain't hard. As in, it's totally okay to try out sobriety and like take it back. So you trying it out for a week or a month, just do it. Just do it. Just to notice or commit to just practice committing to something and just see how it affects you. I'm telling you right now, your bandwidth for what is available to you is going to widen. If you're looking at your emotions through a sine and cosine wave, the top part, positive one, and the bottom part, you know, under zero is negative one. You're available for both of that flow. The, the positive one meaning like, I guess, pleasant emotions. The negative one under zero would be like unpleasant emotions. And I don't even want to judge them like that because I think it's really just a round capacity to feel. But if you're going to if you're going to talk about these, why people use stuff and people and distractions is to get rid of a lot of the unpleasant, is to get rid of the below the line negative one stuff that feels so treacherous and feels so painful. But when you get rid of that negative one underneath the line, you're getting rid of your capacity to also feel the positive one. So when you lessen the wave, you're lessening the wave on both sides. So when you increase the wave through sobriety, you're capable of all of these and this very complex and amazing sense of availability and bandwidth of emotional qualities and textures. So something that I see a lot in early sobriety and others, and obviously profoundly felt in myself, has been this widening of capacity to feel. And everyone's always like, ah, I'm dealing with my pain. I'm dealing with my frustration and annoyance. And they're like, ah, that's the worst part about being sober, right? Everyone, that's why we drink. That's why we, that's why we have sex with people is to get rid of the, the stuff that is painful. But once we're with that, we see on the other end, like, wow, I've never been so joyful. I've never felt such deep sense of appreciation for what is right now. Like, this is like crazy this is like a drug sobriety <laughs> and i i truly believe that's what it is i mean that's just what it is sobriety and meditation and the spaciousness we feel is basically the sustaining feeling of life vigor 
that we're looking for through drugs and alcohol and substance uh, distractions, process addictions, all that is looking for this feeling. So the more we can be with it, the more we actually find that the greatest drug or like high is presence. I mean, it's wild. It's wild. And that sounds probably cliche at this point with all this new age spirituality work around the idea of being present. But it's it's really, it's the greatest roller coaster ride. Something I want to talk about is in this podcast probably a lot is since we're talking about beginnings and all of that is like these ideas about sobriety and how I used to think that when you get sober, you become a, a very quiet person and like a baker and there's nothing wrong with being a baker, but this idea of like withdrawing and just making things for people and it's like very, you're, you become soft-spoken and all this other shit. In fact, I'm pretty sure now that I'm talking about it, I've seen it in a movie where someone was this wild rock star and then they became like a baker or some other kind of craftsman that's like really quiet and they're like, I'm happy, I'm happy, but they still have this weird bitterness with them. And I'm just like, man, you can be a fucking rock star and be sober. Like I am a greater rock star now than I ever was when I was taking Adderall every day and writing my ass off and playing in the subways. Like I definitely felt like a rock star then, but I had no way to f meet the world. I had to hide so often because I couldn't face rejection or appreciation. I couldn't hold anything. And now I'm holding everything or uh, attempting to. And so my, my opportunities are completely different and the people I'm around are different. And once you get sober, it's not like you get quiet or small. It's like you take up the room when you walk in and and that's that's why people see others and we can we have this kind of joke around sober people that are practicing it like long term is that you can spot it in people because they have this joy they have this laughter and like that is so cool and why aren't more people talking about this because there's this deep belly laugh that happens with people that just know what it is to hurt and now know what it is to heal and have joy. And man, that is magnetitis on the soul. <laughs> and anything you make from that place is going to have that too. Uh, so if you're thinking about getting sober, not because it's like end all be all, just practice it and see what friggin' happens because it's totally worth it. You won't lose anything by just trying. You think you might lose something or it might not be for you or it has to be for life. Just try it. Like see, see what it could give you and then do whatever you want with it. But, but don't not commit because you're afraid of what you might lose because you will lose nothing and you have everything to gain. Um, so the subtle problems, uh, if you start fighting with your spouse on every happy occasion, like you find a way to get just drunk enough that on your anniversary you fight, or you have these really amazing dinners and then afterwards it kind of turns into a shit show, uh, or you feel like you have a glass of wine every single night and you, the one night you don't, the next day you end up like making a meatloaf for the week or like you find yourself being more productive or, you know, it can look all these different ways or you're like, I know I'm not being creative, but I really want to be. Uh, so it's like, okay, take something out of the equation and find out where else can light up that hasn't been because it hasn't had a reason to. Just an idea. Uh, 
So why do you make stuff? Why do you make stuff? Why do you want to make stuff? So the idea of beginning to begin is really important. When I make stuff, I'm so excited about the listening process. Like the first thing I ever made was this song called One Way Bus Ride. It was so cute. It was so lame. And I used every cliche in the book. Like I totally, I totally imposed. The beginnings of it were totally channeled. The rest of it was totally imposed upon by me, by me trying to like fit in. Second song I ever wrote was called Cherry Tree. So I sat down and I had just come from a wake from one of my childhood friends. Uh, his mother had died. So I went to her wake and it was chilling and crazy to see her. And it really didn't, really didn't, I didn't internalize it like or assimilate that experience into my experience because I was so young and I also I think I was just built to not feel that stuff like out the gate like I ran from that kind of stuff but I sat down in a thinking like a way to process it or something and I wanted to write a song for her when I got home I was 14 or 16 or something and I started to and it was like about angels and how she was this angel on earth because I really believed that she was I mean I remember I saw her husband at the wake and I saw Jimmy, my, you know, my childhood friend and I saw her husband. I was like, she was an angel on earth. And, you know, I was 14 telling this guy who's probably 40 or 50 that, and he just cried and said, thank you. But I really, from what she always made me feel so incredible and like, God, that's a, that's a why if I ever needed one, I just, I just learned a couple chords in the guitar and I sat down and I just wanted to talk about that because he wasn't in a space to discuss that with me. And, you know, it was just weird. So I sat down to like write her a song and I think I intuitively felt it would be like a way to communicate with her or I don't know. But what's wild is this other crazy song about rape happened instead. Cherry tree happened instead. And it was like these words just came out. I remember grabbing a piece of paper from my desk that was just like a construction piece of paper and I just couldn't stop writing. And it was like this feverish thing. And I did, I, there was no judgment. It was just happening. And it was like, you like picking cherries off the trees and you get a taste and they spit out the seeds. Well, take a branch, take a couple of leaves and leave my cherry tree alone. And it was like, I'm 14. I have never, ever had a sexual assault or even an encounter at that point. And this song about someone taking something so precious from someone else just kind of popped out when I had sat down to impose and make a song for this woman that I loved so much. And that, I look back on that now and it's like, I don't know what my reason was to make that. I don't know what that was about. But I deeply enjoyed the feeling of unity that I felt through channeling that song. So that's, that experience is my why. And I did feel like grief or guilt that I sat down to talk with her or like say this thing to her. And it turned about this other thing, but I just really felt so empowered and heard by making the song just how it was that the guilt just fluttered away. So if you're interested in making things, I encourage everyone to like start listening and to when you begin, begin by not writing, but like embodying, allow images to come, 
allow emotions to come and whatever wants to happen, happen. But like, I know a lot of songwriters, especially in Nashville, will all come together and they're like, let's write a song about friendship. Or I hear that a lot in people who make a lot of music, like a lot. And often they're like, let's write a song about female empowerment. And we're like, yeah, but I don't, I never subscribed to that. For me, beginnings was always like staying available, being around for the muse to hit and writing down what the fuck ever wants to come out. So that's where your specific stamp and stuff also creates a valve. So it might, uh, that is specific. So it might be that my valve has always been a specific palette of like colors and textures and that I didn't want to impose something else like female empowerment or a song about friendship. I didn't want to sit down and write those songs because I probably just couldn't because I wasn't available for the meat to be like made up in that way. So I just didn't. Now that I have all the my my palette you know, you know, a huge percentage more available to me. Now I'm more open to sitting down and deciding to write about something. But when you're first starting, like fucking let what the fuck ever happen, because beginning to finish is such an enemy of beginning to begin. So like whatever, like I encourage my father, he started to write and he has told me that he's been inspired by reading about like the dark things that I write because he's he's not uh renouncing or like choosing against darker stuff that might pop up for him to write about because he knows it's okay that it's there so don't get rid of anything and write everything down uh the idea of morning pages is super helpful in beginnings and that's from julia cameron's book the artist's way which i talked about in the introduction episode also so well this that what you want to do from that book is the idea of morning pages, which has totally changed my life. I mean, I feel totally friggin' endless in the idea of like ideation. That might just be who I am, but it has been, the lid has been ripped off by Julia Cameron's book. Uh, so morning pages is you wake up and you do three pages of uncensored just writing and you just keep that going. It, three pages, whatever size notebook you want to do. And you could write, I hate morning pages. Morning pages is dumb. Or like, oh my God, I haven't gotten my period yet. Am I pregnant? Or uh, white elephants, shit, gold, and I love the Beatles. Whatever. You just write for three pages and then it's like, there's just that suspended moment where you're not judging whatever you're saying or doing and it's just happening. And that really opens your valves for like things to come through. So the more you do that, the more you're just seeing things kind of appear in your brain and images and feelings and thoughts because you're telling the universe, yo, I'm down to receive. Look at all this bullshit I'm writing. My valve is open. So the more we can cultivate that sense of openness and availability, which also is then reinvigorated by sobriety and that availability that that brings, then your percentage of bandwidth is like out, out the door, like over the moon. You are just available to receive stuff. And so that's a great way before you even start doing anything to receive and, and cultivate your receptivity. Also, in beginnings, uh, a really helpful tip on creativity is uh, from this book, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Oh, my God, that book just spoke to me, spoke, spoke to me so big. I love that book because it's so impersonal. 
the muse and like genius and all this other stuff. So she takes the onus of genius off of the person who's creating and just totally puts it on like God, the universe, all of it, right? It all just comes through the vessel. So check this out. She tells this story of this woman who is writing this book and she just chooses not to finish it. She kind of hits it and she's like, oh, I'm just not moving this forward any further. She's a writer. She goes to the symposium of another writer, gives her a big hug, tells her how much she freaking loves her. And they have a hug. And uh, she puts the book to bed when she goes home. And that, like, that's kind of it. She starts working on something else. So they reconvene because they're huge fans of each other. And she goes to that big writer woman and she's like, uh, so what are you working on now? And that big writer woman who is running that symposium tells her ex tells her back exactly the book that she was writing that she had put to bed. So the big writer woman is like, yeah, I'm working on this thing and they're in the Amazon and they got all this crazy shit going on. And it's, it's, uh, it's a story of, you know, this empowerment. Blah, blah, blah. And the woman's like, I, I was writing that book. How are you writing that book? She's like, I just started a couple months ago. I'm really hot about it. And so they realized that the muse had passed, they believed, through that hug at the symposium, that that book was not in that other person before that hug. And, it, you know, it doesn't have to be a physical jumping, but it's just amazing how she was no longer a vessel that could finish that book. So the creative spark jumped from that first writer woman to the second writer woman because it knew it would get made. So when you're thinking about making stuff, let it not be about you. Let it be about what it wants to do. In all of my acting and in all of my writing and musical ideation, it's always about what the song, what the part, what the story wants to do. And as soon as that gets clear, it totally takes the shit off of me to be super cool and clever and amazing because I'm just following friggin' orders. So... This happened to me recently. I wanted to, uh, I had like ideation bubbles about doing a Bonnie Raitt tribute, a musical tribute, but I'm so busy getting a record together, getting a tour together, getting some sync licensing together that I'm like, I just can't fit this on my to-do and I definitely can't organize a group of people around this. So it was so in my mind though, I was feeling it. I had all these like I was like embodying it. Like I could feel what the show would be like and it was going to be a Bonnie Raitt tribute with like Joe Cocker music in it too. And I'm at my coffee shop the other day. Don't, I mean, don't I see, this is, you know, two months ago, I was really hot about making this thing. Don't I see on the coffee shop bulletin board, Bonnie Raitt tribute show. I'm like, you gotta be shitting me. That is so cool because it made me know that first of all, that thing is going to get made and it's not about who's going to make it. It's about who's available to make it. And it's not personal. It's not personal. And it, that just goes back to the, the Buddhist practices that really help me stay sober is all the shit happening is not personal. Like, what are you available for? What are you doing right now? What's happening and what's your relationship to it? So me not creating this Bonnie Raitt tribute show, like, I guess for a second, I was like, oh, man, I should have done that. And then I'm like, wait a second. There's no should at all. It's like this is a thing that wanted to get made. Whoever reached out and grabbed it and brought it down into the world is doing that. And so with whatever you're doing, have that mentality of like this is something that wants to get done instead of like, 
I gotta do this, or oh, I'm dying to do this. This is who I am. Whatever I'm making is who I am, and it speaks and represents my entire life. Like, no one wants that much pressure, and creative stuff doesn't want that much pressure. Just begin to begin. You don't have to begin to finish. It's great when you devote to the listening process, and it does get done, but if it doesn't get done, that thing is going to get made. It's just going to jump to somebody else. So I love that magic in the beginnings of creativity because it feels like a lot of pressure off. I think that's all I want to say today about beginnings in sobriety and creativity. And I would love your feedback uh, about what this episode is for you. Uh, I might touch on something a little bit uh, more on beginnings in my second episode, but there's your tips for the week on sobriety and creativity. Let's just get moving. Let's just make some shit and let's not make it personal. And let's just this week especially get fucking messy, but commit to at least showing up to be messy every day. I love you so much and I hope you have a terrific first week in December. 